Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be exploring Chapter 16 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. This chapter is titled, Craving is the Problem, What is the Solution? In this chapter, we really start to explore some of the harms that we cause through our craving. Back in Chapter 4, which is the Four Noble Truths, We explored the three universal truths and the four noble truths, really getting to what the problem is, the cause of the problem, the elimination of the problem, and the complete elimination of the problem. This is the problem of the unenlightened mind. There's multiple problems that we need to resolve in the unenlightened mind, but craving is the primary problem discovered by Gautama Buddha that leads to all discontentedness. So it's important for us to spend some time really ensuring that we explore this understanding of what craving is and how it's causing problems in not only your life, but in society as well. Because as you understand what craving, desire, or attachment is, then you can apply that wisdom of those teachings into your life to resolve the problems that you're experiencing. But then you can also look at the wider community, the wider society, and see how craving, desire, attachment is actually causing a whole range of problems all throughout society. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be reviewing the three universal truths and the four noble truths. Because if you've been studying any amount of time with me, then you already should be somewhat familiar with these, but it's a good idea for us to review those so that you truly and clearly understand what craving is and how it creates problems. And then as we get to kind of the middle or end of today's talk, we'll be going through some individual cravings that you may be experiencing and you can see how you can actually pursue these same goals as objectives and interests without craving. So that way you can maintain your contentedness. So as we get going today, I would like to invite you to ask any questions that you'd like. If you're in Facebook, YouTube, or our Zoom classroom, you can type in your question in the comment section and our moderator, Max, will help get your question asked during the class. And in Zoom, you're welcome to raise your hand electronically in order to ask your question or any follow-up questions. I would like to share that today I'm operating off of a mobile internet device 
our Wi-Fi is actually down. There was some fire somewhere close by our house that knocked out the internet connection between our house and wherever it goes. So anybody who's experiencing a little bit of challenges with their connection, or if I'm not coming through as clearly as normal, that's the reason why is because my Wi-Fi isn't up the way that it normally is. So this is just in permanence. And if anything goes down during our talk today, what I'm going to do is end up shutting down the live stream and just focusing on the Zoom classroom. So anybody who's in Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, or Periscope, if anything, it gets too hectic or the connection isn't working quite right, or for some reason, if your connection goes down, just look at the details for the Zoom classroom and come into our Zoom and I'll be teaching in there and continuing the class. So thank you for joining. I appreciate that you're here and really pleased that you're actually are taking the time to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha. So starting off with the three universal truths, let's just kind of review these a bit as they prepare us to understand the Four Noble Truths. The first of the three universal truths is impermanence. Impermanence is essentially the truth that everything is constantly changing. There is no fixed or permanent state of material objects or possessions, relationships, thoughts, ideas. Everything is essentially constantly changing. There's no fixed, consistent, or steady state other than enlightenment or nibbana. And it's important when you learn these teachings that you don't just believe what I'm sharing with you, but instead that you look at what's being shared, you understand it intellectually, and then you try to apply it in the world around you. Because what we're teaching here is the natural laws of existence. And because these are the natural laws, they exist in the natural world. So this first universal truth of impermanence, you can actually look at this and test it for yourself so that you don't just believe what I'm sharing with you, but instead you look at it and investigate it, examine it for yourself so that then you will know that it's truth, which will help you to acquire wisdom. The way that the mind is awakened to enlightenment is through wisdom because the reason why the mind is in the unenlightened state now is because there are certain things that you don't understand about this natural world, about the natural laws of existence, that the mind is operating in a way that doesn't match with these natural laws of existence. So the more that you understand these intellectually, you reflect on them, and then you apply them in practice, you will see the truth and acquire the wisdom so that the mind now starts operating through this newfound wisdom. So with impermanence, hearing me say that there is no steady or constant fixed state, then you don't just take my word for it or the Buddha's words for it. What you do is you look at the world around you and you try to decide and look to see, is there anything that is truly permanent? So you start going through things. Is your hair permanent? Does it stay the same length all the time? Is it the same color all the time? Is it the same consistency? What about your, the human body? Has the human body been the same throughout your entire life or is it constantly changing? 
What about your relationships? Have you had the same relationships in your life all the way through your life? Or have your relationships been constantly changing? Not only the people that are in your relationships, but the relationship itself. For example, you may have a relationship with your mom or your dad, but that particular relationship is constantly changing and evolving as time goes on. It's not steady, permanent, or fixed. What about your occupation or your job? Have you had the same job and occupation your entire life? Or will you have that same job or occupation your entire life? No, of course not. You've had different jobs and eventually you will change jobs or stop working. And this is constant change. This is impermanence. In addition to that, your income, your income is constantly changing, right? So the fact is the first universal truth is that everything is impermanent. Everything's constantly changing. And you need to understand that as a building block as we move towards understanding that craving is the problem. So if you're not convinced yet with 100% certainty that everything is impermanent, you need to take some time and reflect on that. You need to look through the world, look through this natural world and try to find something that's permanent. And if you can find something that's permanent, then you've disproved the Buddha and you're maybe smarter than the Buddha was. But I'm 100% sure that if you look at this and you reflect on it, you won't find anything that's permanent because it doesn't exist. The only thing that's permanent is enlightenment or the mental state of Nibbana itself. Once you attain that mental state, the mind will be permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And I'm going to explain this as we get going today. Okay, so that's impermanence. The second universal truth is discontentedness. Oftentimes this word is translated as suffering because the Buddha didn't speak in English, of course, during his lifetime. He spoke in a different language. The source teachings that we go back to as the most complete and comprehensive source is what we call the Pali Canon or the Pali text. This is the largest, most complete collection of Gautama Buddha's teachings. The word that's in there that is used for this second universal truth is dukkha. And oftentimes people translate this as suffering. And you'll hear that the Buddha taught to eliminate suffering. But as we talk about this second universal truth, I will help you understand that that's not the best translation for us to be using, and it wouldn't bring your mind to fully understanding what it is that Gautama Buddha was discussing. So if you don't understand what Gautama Buddha was discussing and teaching, you wouldn't be able to attain the results of what it is that he's leading you towards, which is enlightenment. So let's be sure that we fully understand what it is that Gautama Buddha was discussing so that you can get to the results of an enlightened mind. When he talked about dukkha, he talked about three individual feelings. He talked about painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Okay, these are the three feelings that the human mind experiences. And let me help you understand what these three feelings are, because you've experienced this. 
A painful feeling is something like sadness, depression, anger, hatred, ill will, guilt, shame, fear, anxiety, stress. Whenever you've experienced these in your life, it's been quite painful. So that is a painful feeling or discontentedness. So sadness is a feeling in the mind and we can describe this mind as discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. Or when the mind is angered or have hatred or ill will, these are feelings in the mind and we can say that the mind is experiencing painful feelings and it is discontent. Or when you're experiencing guilt or shame or fear, anxiety or stress, these are all feelings that are very painful in the mind and when you're experiencing those, the mind is discontent, discontented or experiencing discontentedness. So that's the first feeling. The second feeling is pleasant feelings. The mind experiences happiness, excitement, elation. These are very pleasant for the mind and the mind oftentimes tries to pursue these. So when the mind is happy, it's experiencing pleasant feelings, but that is a discontent mind. It's discontented or experiencing discontentedness. When it's excited, when it's elated, these pleasant feelings are something that the mind latches onto and it tries to pursue these at all costs. And because of this, the mind becomes discontent. There's times when you've been very excited or elated and maybe you fell down and hurt yourself or twisted your ankle or you broke a glass or you broke something that was close to you or you said something that you would have rather have not said in that situation and it caused harm. So these pleasant feelings where the mind goes in one particular direction, actually because of this discontentedness of the happiness, excitement and elation, it starts to make the mind uncalm and unpeaceful. So it becomes discontent. And then we have feelings that we experience that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is like boredom or loneliness, melancholy, shyness. We have displeasures and uncomfortableness or unsatisfied mind where the mind is just kind of displeased, right? Some people might say that boredom or loneliness is quite painful for them. And okay, if you would like to put that in the painful category, you can. But nonetheless, there's this third feeling of neither painful nor pleasant, where the mind, it, it's not painful, it's not pleasant. So maybe if you're sitting on a bus and in your culture that people kind of give each other a little bit of space, and when somebody comes and sits really, really close to you, it's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's neither painful nor pleasant, or like shyness. Shyness isn't painful. It's not pleasant. It's kind of like, eh, it's uncomfortable. It's kind of neither painful nor pleasant. So these are the three feelings that the Buddha described as dukkha. And I'm describing as discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. So if we describe this word dukkha as suffering, then we tend to bring our mind only to painful feelings. When you're experiencing happiness, excitement, or elation, you wouldn't say you were suffering. Or if you are experiencing shyness, 
Or if the mind was just displeased, you wouldn't say that you were suffering. So if we use this word suffering, then we're only bringing our mind to about 33% of what the Buddha was actually talking about and what he's talking about to eliminate from the mind. Because the whole goal of these teachings is to eliminate discontentedness from the mind. So if we use the word suffering, then we're only focusing in on those painful feelings and we're leaving off two thirds of what it is that we're working to eliminate. And in order to really bring your mind to what it is that the Buddha was talking about, you need to use this word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. Now, when you hear me say that the goal is to eliminate painful feelings, okay, you're probably with me on that. When you hear me say that the idea is to eliminate neither painful nor pleasant feelings of boredom, loneliness, shyness, displeasure, uncomfortable, you're probably with me on that one too. But if you hear me say that the goal is to eliminate these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation, you might be, huh, what's really going on here? Why would I be interested to eliminate those? Well, it turns out that happiness is not permanent, right? Happiness isn't permanent. And what a lot of us are being taught throughout our life is to pursue happiness, Everybody wants to be happy. I just want to be happy. In fact, some people who teach the Buddhist teachings, they say that the ultimate goal of enlightenment is essentially this blissful, happy, this ultimate happiness that we call enlightenment or nibbana. But in fact, that once again is a word or a characterization of enlightenment or nibbana that wouldn't bring your mind to exactly what the Buddha was teaching. Because happiness is impermanent because it's based on some condition. You're happy because you got a new pair of shoes, but eventually the feelings that you have around those new pair of shoes starts to diminish and now the happiness is gone. Or you've gotten a new job and once again, you're happy, you're excited, you're elated, but that happiness wanes because it's impermanent and the mind is left right back with some of these painful feelings or neither painful nor pleasant. Or you get really happy, excited, or elated about a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or any number of things that come up in your life. There's some condition that's creating those pleasant feelings. And now the mind's pursuing those pleasant feelings. And if it gets it, then it's happy, but it's only temporary. And then when those feelings wear off, the mind cycles back to these painful feelings or these feelings of neither painful nor pleasant. So the unenlightened mind is plagued by this discontentedness. The unenlightened mind just continues to seek out these pleasant feelings through all these various conditions. And if it gets what it wants, the object of its affection, then it experiences happiness, excitement, and elation. But if it doesn't get that, or when that wanes off, when that happiness wanes off, then it goes to these painful feelings or neither painful nor pleasant. So this is the unenlightened mind just kind of bouncing around between all these three feelings. Now, what I just described is probably in your mind explaining what you've experienced your entire life. So if your goal is to eliminate suffering 
It's only bringing your mind to this one particular feeling of painful feeling. If your goal is to attain happiness, well, that's not possible because that's not permanent. You can't have permanent happiness because happiness is impermanent based on some condition. So the goal of these practices is to eliminate discontentedness, which is painful feelings, pleasant feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, and attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, right? This can be permanent because there's no condition that's creating this enlightened mind. You're actually eliminating all of these conditions of how the mind bounces all around. You're actually eliminating that and getting to this point where the mind is naturally enlightened, experiencing a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And we're going to talk more about that as we get going here. But what's important right now in terms of the three universal truths is that you understand discontentedness, that the unenlightened mind is going to still experience these three feelings and what these three feelings are. And the goal is to eliminate these. Now, when you think about this, when you think about what the Buddha was describing, you're not interested in believing him. You're not interested in believing me. So what you need to do is you need to look at these three feelings and think about the mind that you've been living with for however many years and say, in these three feelings, is the Buddha explaining all the different feelings that I experience? Because in about five minutes, I just described what the mind is experiencing. Painful feelings, pleasant feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. Can you come up with another feeling that doesn't match to one of these three? Because if you can come up with a feeling that is not part of one of these three, then the Buddha is not explaining a universal truth. Because a universal truth is going to be true in all situations. So the universal truth here is this is what discontentedness is. He's describing the unenlightened mind to you here. So if you can come up with a feeling that doesn't match or sync up to one of these three, then this isn't a universal truth. So you need to take the time to look at that so that you can understand the truth in this second universal truth. So then you have the wisdom to understand this second universal truth. This third universal truth is what we call non-self. This tends to be a bit of a challenging one for people to understand. It takes a lot of time to understand this and really set with it and soak it in. Most people need to really be working with a lot of these teachings for a particularly long period of time for many, many months or years before they truly understand what non-self is. This third universal truth of non-self is discussing that there is no permanent self. Let's discuss what that is. In the in unenlightened mind, it has this concept of a permanent self. The unenlightened mind thinks in a lot of cases that this physical body is you. This is you. This is the self. If I asked you, point to you, where are you? You know, where is Barbara? Where is Michael? Where is Jonathan? You know, where is Rebecca? Oftentimes, 
what people do is they actually point to the physical body. And if that's what you're doing now, that's okay. That's just where you are in your understanding of the experience that you're having. But in reality, this permanent self only exists in the mind. It doesn't actually exist. It's only in the unenlightened mind that this exists and it's causing problems. What we actually have is we have this human body, which is essentially a bag of skin with bones and fluid and organs and chemicals and all these different things. And we have this human mind, this consciousness, and they've come together for this existence. Once we're born, we're assigned a name. We're given the name Jacqueline or Javier or Manal or James or Max or David. And we get this name and it's this label that's assigned to this human body in this mind, this unique existence of this coming together. And now as we age and we grow, more and more people refer to us using this label and this name, and we start assigning an identity to it. We start having a certain personality. We start relating to this human body and this name in a certain way. And now we protect this self so that when somebody says something that's displeasing to us, then we don't like it and we start protecting this self, this self-image, this self-identity. And because the mind identifies with this physical body as being the self, then we end up causing all kinds of problems in our own life because we're trying to constantly protect this self over and over and over again. It's much like what an animal does in the animal world. An animal has a self and it needs to constantly look out and be fearful as if the lions are coming or the bears coming, you know, what's coming to attack me. And it's very fearful. But what happens is when we're born into this human world, we maintain that self and then we become very fearful and we oftentimes are very frightened or we take this aggressive stance of protecting this self. But you can discover even at these early stages without going into this in a whole lot of detail, you can discover at these early stages that there is no self by reflecting on this in this way. Think about who you were when you were 5, 10, 15 years old. Think about the person that you were and the self-image that you had of yourself at that age. And then carry forward for successive years into where you are now. Your self-image has been constantly changing. Who you think you are as a person has been constantly changing because of impermanence. The way you looked at yourself in the earlier parts of your life has been constantly and slowly evolving to where you are today and how you look at yourself. And where you are today and the way you look at yourself is going to change some more by the time you actually die. This is how you know that there is no permanent self because the image and the way that you look at yourself has been constantly changing over the whole course of your life. But the problem is, is that the unrelated mind thinks that there is a permanent self and it protects that self-image and that self-identity at all costs. But in order to move to this enlightened mind, you eventually learn that you need to realize non-self or eradicate this self from the mind. 
And this takes a lot more time, a lot more training, a lot more understanding for you to be able to do that. But there is this third universal truth that there is no self. And one of the things that you can be doing in these early stages is you can just be working on being humble, being peaceful, not identifying as this is my car, these are my clothes, this is my job, this is my wife, this is my son. Because if everything's mine, 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 then you're holding on and trying to accumulate things. And now when you don't have those things, the mind's going to be very discontent. And because of impermanence, you can't hold on to all of these things permanently. You can't even hold on to this physical body. It doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. Because when there's death in this life, this human body is going to stay here, right? So this human body doesn't belong to you. This human body isn't you. That's not who you are, this human body. But you need to understand this a lot more to really have it soak in. So if you're not 100% understanding it now, it's okay. But just be aware that there is this third universal truth called non-self. Let me pause here and see if there's any questions or what questions we might have before progressing further. Hi David, just a technical point firstly. We can hear you clearly for the most part, but it is a little bit laggy and there have been some periods where it's chopped up rather. So something we could try is maybe pausing the YouTube stream, perhaps leave Facebook going, see if that helps, but it's all impermanent, right? Yeah. Sometimes they're doing well, sometimes Zoom is the one that's lagging. Okay. Have you posted something in those places to let people know to join us on Zoom? Yes. Okay. So I'll go ahead and shut down the live stream then. Yeah, as if we needed to prove that impermanence is actually real. So uh, (laughs) if, if people couldn't discover that before, now they really know it, right? All right. So any questions on the three universal truths? I have a question, David. So I understand that an enlightened being is working to eliminate discontentedness, including painful, pleasant, and things that are neither painful nor pleasant. To what extent would an enlightened being have moods? They wouldn't have moods. They wouldn't go from like grumpy or sad or excited. Their mind doesn't oscillate up and down like that. It's just always very even with all that equanimity, evenness of temper. They have thoughts, they have feelings, they're they're interested in seeing the world be a better place and they tell jokes, they laugh, they enjoy being around wholesome things, but they no longer are motivated by the same things of like we are in the unenlightened world that, you know, in the unenlightened world, we're essentially pursuing our cravings all the time. We're very selfish. We're looking out for ourselves a lot of times where as the mind becomes more and more enlightened, you start looking at this interconnectivity of how you can benefit others in the world. And you wake up peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy all day long. You're peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You go to sleep peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You're never grumpy. You're never sad. You're never lonely. You're never bored. This is why it's so joyful because your mind never experiences any of that stuff anymore. So I understand that an enlightened being might tell jokes and laugh, but they wouldn't crave the jokes. They wouldn't hang on to that experience. Does that also apply to some of the pleasant feelings listed here? So happiness, for example, can they feel happy, 
but just not cling to happiness or is happiness the wrong word a enlightened being if they hear a joke or they tell a joke or they see something that's funny they're going to laugh they're going to joke but then their mind's going to come right back to the middle they're not going to long for those experiences they're not going to be looking for them or trying to hold on to them happiness is created off of some condition right so there's a condition of my wife comes home with a watermelon for example and let's just say i really enjoy watermelons right oh my goodness watermelon yay wonderful wonderful right if you allow your mind to get happy based on that condition then that means the mind is still looking externally for satisfaction and it's this external condition of the watermelon that's created the happiness and if you allow your mind to do that then it's also going to latch on to this external conditions that create the sadness as well so the mind is still latching on to these external things creating internal feelings where an enlightened mind has been so well trained that it no longer latches on to things externally for pleasure and it also doesn't latch onto things externally and it doesn't feel pain so you'll still laugh you'll still joke you still might have what you would refer to as happiness but it won't be based on any particular condition any external condition it'll just be naturally there all the time so i call that joy as opposed to happiness okay just one more little clarification for me then so say that prior to enlightenment you felt happy generally around your kids like if you had kids and mm -hmm. you know your kids made you happy well after training the mind to full enlightenment you would still experience joy around your children would you experience more joy when they were there or would it just be completely equal whether or not you happen to be around your kids right whether they're with you or they're not you're still joyful that's the difference between an unenlightened mind and an enlightened mind. An unenlightened mind is only going to feel that happiness when there's some external condition that's being fulfilled. And when that external condition is removed, your kids go to school, your kids go away to college, your kids get married, then the mind's going to be sad and it's going to be lonely when that external condition is removed. But what an enlightened mind is going to do, a practitioner is going to gradually train their mind that if they're with their kids, they feel joy and they enjoy being around them. But the mind recognizes that is impermanent, so it doesn't latch on to it and create happiness based on that condition. It's just inwardly joyful when it's in the company of your kids. But then when your kids are away, say they go to school or they go to summer camp for a week or whatever, the mind doesn't miss them. The mind just knows that they're away and this is impermanent and the mind is not experiencing loneliness or boredom because it's inwardly fulfilled. It can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy with the kids with you, or it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when they're away as well. But what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's latching on to all these external things. That's why the vast majority of the world is going around trying to fix everybody else. The unenlightened mind thinks if they can fix this world around them and they can just get their wife or husband to do everything that they want and they can just get their kids to do what they want and they just get, you know, this neighbor to do what they want. If they can just get all this stuff exactly right, 
then the world will be wonderful. So everybody goes around kind of pointing the finger, trying to fix this external world because they don't understand the external world, these natural laws of existence. So this unenlightened mind is just constantly trying to fix everything else externally. And what the Buddhist teachings are doing is it's focusing you and saying, no, the problem isn't the fact that your neighbors talk loud occasionally. That's not the problem because that's going to happen. That's impermanence. It's not going to be permanently quiet in your home. What the problem is, is not all these external things that you need to go around and fix. The problem is internal, that the mind doesn't understand things like impermanence. The mind doesn't understand discontentedness. The mind doesn't understand this non-self. And because of all this whole host of things that the Buddha explains in his teachings that the mind doesn't understand, when you understand these things and you see the truth in them through investigation, through examining these yourself in practice, then when the mind understands these and it has that wisdom, then it will no longer function in the world the same way. It will recognize the impermanent nature of things and it will be so well trained that nothing externally is causing painful feelings because it's inwardly content and fulfilled. Just like nothing external is going to cause pleasant feelings because the mind is already inwardly fulfilled and content, the mind doesn't need these external things to feel joy. It's already inwardly joyful. Got it. Okay, thank you, David. We have a follow-up from Rhonda. She asks, is it to achieve balance, such as it is joyful to laugh but not be attached to staying there? Exactly, Rhonda. So when you tell a joke or you hear a joke and you laugh and it's funny or whatever, okay, that's fine. And then whoop, you bring your mind right back to the middle. But what happens is we don't always do that. But that's the goal. That's what we would like to train the mind to do is like, yeah, we laugh, we joke, we have fun. And then boom, we bring the mind right back to the middle. But the problem is, is that the mind will crave that and crave that and crave those pleasant feelings. And because of that craving, the mind just keeps searching and seeking and wanting this external pleasure rather than just being inwardly fulfilled. So when you experience that joy associated with a joke or something that's happened that's enjoyable, you experience that. But all the while, the mind understands that that's impermanent. And if it latches onto it, it's going to cause itself discontentedness. So rather than latch onto it, it just brings the mind right back to the middle. We have a question from Michael. Can you explain more about the word conditions and what are their traits? Okay, so a condition is anything external, anything external. You get a new computer, you're so happy. You get a new job, you're so happy. You get a new boyfriend or girlfriend, a new pair of clothes. Anything that comes up, some external thing, you feel very excited and very happy about that. And that's a condition. And if you allow the mind to latch on to those conditions, then it's also going to latch on to these conditions that create the sadness or anger or hostility or stress or guilt or shame or fear or these other things as well. So what an unconditioned mind is, is that it no longer looks to these external things and allows these external things to create internal feelings. So these conditions are all external. Unconditioned means you're no longer 
allowing the mind to be subject to all this change in the world, right? Because all these external conditions are constantly changing. That's the impermanent nature of the world. But as we talk about the Four Noble Truths, what happens is the mind latches on to these external conditions. And then when they all start changing, that's when the mind becomes discontent. So what this practice is about is training the mind to let go and let go of those external conditions so that it no longer latches onto them for pleasant feelings and therefore the painful feelings aren't experienced either because it's not latching on to these external things. Like for example, in this situation, if I just found so much pleasure live streaming to Facebook and YouTube and I just thought that was the best thing ever and I got excited about that and happy and elated, well, when I can't do that, then the mind's going to be sad or angered or you know, feel stress or anxiety because I can't live stream now. So if I allowed the mind to have all this pleasant feelings associated with this certain thing, that thing isn't going to be permanent because of the universal truth of impermanence. So if I allow the mind to latch on to that, then that means at some point, it's going to experience the painful feelings. We have a question from Manal. Would curiosity or amusement exist in a mind that is inwardly content? Yes, for sure. You know, uh, what this path is about is investigating things, not believing anything, and really kind of examining things to discover the truth. And that requires a lot of curiosity to do that. And in order to progress on this path, you need that curiosity and you need to be able to see it for yourself. People who are on this path, they're not blind followers. There's no followers the way I see it. Anybody who studies with me, I'm not interested in any followers. It's a practitioner, someone who's learning and examining these teachings with curiosity. And the more curious you are, the better. And you get so good at looking at things and discovering the truth that everything you do, not just the Buddhist teachings, but you get so good at that with the Buddhist teachings that it boils over into your occupation, into your personal life, into your family life, that when things happen, you immediately become curious and you start to figure out ways to determine what the truth is. And you don't just accept things blindly on face value, but you investigate and figure out what the truth is. And you get really, really good at that through practicing these teachings. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. So let's talk about what is craving, desire, attachment, because these words mean different things outside of the context of Buddhist teachings, right? Because we all know these words and we've used these words in our life at different times before encountering Buddhist teachings. But when you encounter Buddhist teachings, these words take on a bit of a different meaning. So what craving, desire, attachment is, is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. The mind just really wants that piece of chocolate. It really craves it. It really desires it. It really has this expectation. It wants that chocolate. And you've got that chocolate bar at home, and you just know when you get home from work, you're going to have so much pleasure 
and eating that chocolate bar. This is craving desire attachment. But also, you know, we've used this word craving as it relates to eating certain things. It's usually how we talk about craving. But also, this craving can be for things that aren't food. It can be you have this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness for your kids to be a certain way or for your life partner to be a certain way or for certain things to happen at work or acquiring certain material possessions. The mind has this longing and strong eagerness for things. This is what a craving desire attachment is. You can also think of it in terms of expectations or wants. We also use the word holding or grasping where the mind is lurching out. You'll feel the mind kind of pulling in the direction of an attachment. That's what craving desire attachment is where the mind is pulling towards something and it really is desiring it. It really wants it. And if it gets it, then it's going to experience those pleasant feelings, but they're temporary. But if it doesn't get it, then it's going to experience those painful feelings. And then sometimes you just don't even really know what the mind wants. You're just kind of like, ah, I don't even know. That's the neither painful nor pleasant feelings. So if the mind knows what it wants and it develops this craving desire attachment, it's going to put all this effort and energy and resources behind this mental longing with a strong eagerness to pursue and pursue and pursue this external pleasure and try to acquire this thing in order to create those pleasant feelings. And as long as it gets it, it's going to feel pleasure. And then that's temporary and it wears off. But if it keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and it doesn't get that thing, then it's going to experience the painful feelings. And then there's times where you just kind of sit around and you're not really sure what the mind wants. And that's where the boredom and loneliness comes in. The neither painful nor pleasant. Right. So this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing for something with a strong eagerness is the core and primary problem that the Buddha discovered. So it's very important that you start associating these words with craving, desire, attachment, that it's a mental longing with a strong eagerness. So if the mind has a craving, desire, attachment, which we also use the word expectations or wants, if the mind wants something so badly, if it gets it, it feels pleasant feelings. If it doesn't get it, it's going to feel painful feelings. Or if it has a certain expectation for an outcome, it wants a certain outcome in a situation. It has a certain expectation. I want to spend time with myself on Sunday for 12 hours. This is just my time, just me alone for 12 hours all day Sunday. And that's what I expect. That's what I want. Well, in the moment, things come up. Your car battery dies. You can't go to the park like you planned because of impermanence. Or you get a phone call from one of your children that maybe they got hurt and you need to take them to the hospital. Or something else comes up and you don't get that alone time that you wanted, that you expected, that you had this mental longing and a strong eagerness for. And because you didn't get those 12 hours, you only got two or three, now the mind becomes discontent. It's not a problem that you're interested in spending time with yourself. 
That's not the problem. That can be a good goal and objective and interest. The problem is that the mind forms this craving, desire, attachment, these expectations and these wants. It has this mental longing for something with a strong eagerness and it wants that and expects that so badly that then when it doesn't get it, that's when it becomes discontent. So that's why craving is such a big problem because the mind's going to keep latching on and lurching on to things, wanting things in a certain way. And as long as you get it, okay, you're happy for a period of time. But then when you don't get it or that happiness wears off, then the mind becomes painful. It experiences these painful feelings. So this is craving, desire, attachment. And we also use words like expectations, wants, holding, and grasping as well. So does anyone have any questions on what a craving, desire, attachment is? We have no questions at the moment, David. Okay. So let's discuss the Four Noble Truths then, because this is where we tie all of this together and what the Buddha was talking about. This is his first discourse in describing the Four Noble Truths. And the way that he described them versus the way I describe them is different because I've kind of brought them into a very simplified way of understanding them so that the average person can understand them. What the first noble truth is, is that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, then you know that you're unenlightened. No big deal. There's lots of unenlightened people in the world. So the goal is to attain enlightenment. But here you know that if your mind is sad, angry, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, if you feel guilt or shame or fear, or you get really, really happy and excited and elated, or you have boredom or loneliness or shyness, or the mind just feels displeased or uncomfortable or kind of icky, then you know that the mind is unenlightened. Okay, this is essentially the problem. The problem with the human mind is that it's untrained, it's unenlightened, and it's experiencing discontentedness. That's the problem. The second noble truth is the cause of the problem. What's causing the discontentedness is our own attachments because the mind craves for everything to be permanent when everything is impermanent. Okay, so the mind latches on with this craving, desire, attachment, with these expectations and wants. And because it's latching on to these external things, the mind's causing itself to be discontent. So let's just say you're in a relationship and you ask your life partner to take out the trash before going to bed. And that's something that you really want them to do. You really expect them to do it. And you really have this desire for that outcome. Okay. Well, let's just say you go to bed first, you doze off, they're doing whatever they do and they come to bed. And then you wake up the next day and you go out and you realize they didn't take out the trash. Well, if your mind gets angry or irritated or annoyed at that, that's because you're causing it yourself because you wanted that trash to be taken out so badly, right? It's not that taking the trash out is a bad thing. Trash needs to go out of the house. 
It's that the mind was latching onto it and it was expecting this permanence. It was expecting that your partner take this out. It was expecting a certain outcome. And when it didn't get that outcome, it then became discontent rather than recognizing the impermanent nature of what transpired that your partner isn't going to remember every single thing that you say and every single thing that you guys discuss, they're not going to be able to fulfill every single thing. They're going to have memory lapses. They're going to have situations where they got tied up into something else and they just came off and dozed off the bed and the trash is still sitting there in the middle of the kitchen, right? Even if the bugs come, even if rabbits come, even if raccoons are in the house, okay, well, that situation is impermanent. You can fix it. But what happens is the mind just thinks that it's permanent, right? Not only did it want the trash to be taken out, and now that it didn't, now that it didn't get the expectation fulfilled, and it wanted that so badly, now when it sees the trash there with all these ants and bugs, now it thinks that's permanent too. And now it becomes enraged and aggressive. And now it starts talking badly to your partner and damaging the relationship rather than just be like, hmm, okay, they forgot to take it out. Let's fix this. Let's take care of it. Whether you talk to them and ask them to take it out again or whether you choose to take it out or whatever happens, happens. You solve it however you would like to solve it. But because of impermanence, that situation where the trash is in the middle of the kitchen is impermanent as well. But the unenlightened mind doesn't recognize that. It just holds on and holds on and holds on, causing itself to be discontent. It's this mental longing with a strong eagerness. I just really wanted my partner to understand me and I just wanted them to take out the trash. It was a simple task. Why couldn't they do it? I asked them and five minutes later, all they had to do is just take out the trash. Well, impermanence happened. That's what's happened, right? But because of the self, because of the ego and all of that other stuff that's in there, the mind just gets enraged and causes itself to be discontent. That's the second noble truth. The mind is causing itself to be discontent. You can look at this associated with death as well or the end of a relationship. When somebody dies or when a relationship is over, the mind tends to become very sad or angry or lonely or bored because the mind craves for this person to be permanent, either in your current relationship or when somebody dies that's close to you, the mind becomes sad. And the mind mistakenly thinks that this is because of love. You loved this person so much that when they died, that's why you're sad. Or you love this person so much so that when the relationship split, that's why you're so sad. But love doesn't cause sad feelings. Love doesn't cause anger. It's not the love that's causing it because love is this genuine interest in seeing others be well and be peaceful. It's not the love that's causing the mind to be discontent. It's because the mind is craving. 
It's having this strong eagerness and having this longing to keep this relationship permanent. And when this relationship isn't permanent, that's what's causing the mind to be angry or sad or bored or lonely or whatever else because you found so much happiness at one time in this relationship. Because the mind was so happy experiencing those pleasant feelings during the relationship, now the relationship is impermanent, which it's always been impermanent. The mind just didn't recognize it. The mind just didn't understand the three universal truths. And now when the person dies or the relationship splits and the mind experiences this impermanence, it doesn't like it. It doesn't like this change. It doesn't like it. The mind craves for things to be permanent because it doesn't recognize impermanence. So the mind is essentially causing itself to be discontent. This is the second noble truth. The third noble truth is that you can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the attachments. So the second noble truth is the cause of the problem. The third noble truth is the solution to the problem. The solution is to train the mind to eliminate the attachments, eliminate the mind's tendency to hold on to things permanently. And that's what we're doing when you're learning about impermanence and you're gaining that wisdom that everything's impermanent. And when things start shifting and changing around you, you just identify, ah, impermanence, 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 impermanence. And you just start seeing it for what it is. In the past, when you experienced impermanence, the mind didn't like it and it got angry. But now when you see things that are impermanent, okay, you couldn't be on Facebook, you couldn't be on YouTube, so you had to come into Zoom. No big deal. Let's just fix it, right? Let's just get on with it, right? But you've got to do that in every part of your life. So one part of it is, is you've got to understand impermanence and see it everywhere around you. But then you need to train the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. That's what it is to eliminate this discontentedness is to eliminate the mind's tendency to crave permanence. So when you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation and a thought comes into the mind and you let it go or you cut it off and you bring the mind to the breath, you're training the mind to let go. So then when you come out and you see the trash in the middle of your kitchen and you start feeling a little bit of anger, you just cut it off and let it go. But you can't do that if you haven't trained in meditation. If you haven't trained in breathing mindfulness meditation over multiple weeks and months, you're going to find it hard to let go of things because the mind's still craving permanence. So what you're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation is you're not eliminating the thoughts. You're not completely extinguishing the thoughts. What you're doing is you're getting better and better at controlling the mind so that when the thoughts come up, you just cut it off and let it go back to the breath. The thoughts come up three minutes, four minutes, you realize you've been dwelling in the future in your meditation. You cut it off and bring it back to the breath. And that time will get shorter and shorter and shorter where you'll be able to, in meditation, keep the mind focused on the breath and only the breath for longer and longer periods of time where the mind will get very still because now you've got control over the mind. You've trained the mind to let go and now you can control it because you've trained it. 
So what the third noble truth is talking about is training the mind to eliminate this tendency for it to crave permanence. That's what the third noble truth is talking about, is eliminating this aspect of the mind that wants to hold on to everything. And that's what you're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation. And that's what you're doing when you practice generosity. When you freely give your time, effort, energy, and resources helping other people, you're training the mind to let go, let go, let go. I don't have to be pleased all the time. I don't have to just pursue selfish pursuits. I can let go, let go, let go. So through breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, you're slowly, gradually training the mind to let go, let go. And you'll get better and better at this. But in this transition, the mind will still have some anger or irritation or frustration that will arise, but then you'll get better and better at cutting that off. And as you do, eventually that anger won't arise anymore because you've gotten to the core root problem, which is you've trained this mind to stop craving permanence and looking externally for satisfaction. You've trained the mind to stop craving permanence. And when something happens that is change, you just accept it. You just know, okay, that's impermanent. So let me just do the next best thing, which is let's just be on Zoom. We don't need to live stream, right? So the third noble truth is all about training the mind through understanding impermanence, practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing generosity, but then also if you think back to chapter 12, when we talked about identifying attachments. We talked about this red light on the dashboard and that's the discontentedness. So when the mind becomes happy, excited, elated, notice what that is and what's causing that. What's that condition? And then remove that condition from the mind. Or when you notice the mind becomes sad or anger, frustrated, guilty, fearful, shameful, figure out what are the conditions that are causing that and then eliminate that. And then likewise, if the mind becomes neither painful nor pleasant, that's your red light on the dashboard that helps you to then investigate and identify what is the conditions that are causing this so then you can actively, skillfully work with this condition in order to remove it. So I'll give you an example. A while ago, when I first started teaching these to my son, I noticed that when he was playing video games and then my wife or I would ask him to come do something, he would get really grumpy, very irritable, and sometimes very angry with us if we asked him to stop playing his game and come help us. Well, that's because he's craving permanence. He wants to play this game. He has this mental longing with a strong eagerness to play this video game. So that anger, that frustration that he got when mom and dad asked him to come do something, that was the red light. And I was like, aha, he's attached to the video game. So now what we did is over the course of many months is we started putting more and more space between him and the video game. And then I started to actively train him so that when he would get on his video game, just 10 or 15 minutes, I would immediately ask him to do something, even just something simple, like, can you get dad a glass of water? 
And then he would kind of get grumpy with me. And then like, okay, he would play it for a little bit longer. Then I would ask him another thing. I would just keep asking him to break away from this game. And it took many, many months to train his mind because when he would get a little bit grumpy, I would point out to him that that's discontentedness and show him how it's from the game. And he started realizing that, yes, this is in fact craving, desire, attachment. His mind is expecting and wanting to play this game. So what I had to do to skillfully work with this and help him eliminate this attachment is I had to introduce a whole lot of impermanence and have him keep breaking away from this game. And it took maybe, I don't even know from when I started to when he's fine now, is maybe a year, two years it took us to work at that. And we had to do the same thing with the TV. And we had to do the same thing with other things as well. So to eliminate this discontent mind, yes, there's the intellectual learning of impermanence and going around and seeing that, seeing true reality of what that is. Yes, it's training the mind with breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity and doing that on a consistent basis over many days, weeks, months, and years. But then it's also working skillfully that when you see the red light on your dashboard that you're kind of grumpy if, or you're sad or you're bored or you're happy or excited, when you see those, you got to identify what those conditions are. What are those attachments? What are the things that the mind's longing for? What does it have a strong eagerness for? And when you identify those, then you've got to put more and more space between you and that thing. I gave example a few classes ago where one time I left the house, I realized I left my cell phone at the house and my mind became discontent because I felt like if I needed somebody, I couldn't call and I became discontent and I realized that because that was the red light. So to work with this skillfully, then I intentionally left it home several times after that in order to train my mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when I'm outside with no cell phone. And sometimes I would leave for four, five, six hours and not have any cell phone because I realized that if I needed to make a call, I could just borrow somebody's phone. It wasn't a big deal. So it produced a bit of fear in me when I left and realized that I didn't have the phone. So when you get these red lights, the red light is the discontentedness You've got to investigate, well, what is it? Identify those craving, desire, attachments, those expectation, those wants. What's the permanence that the mind is craving? And then introduce impermanence to train the mind to be comfortable, train the mind to be content without this thing, whatever it is. So that's the third noble truth is you can eliminate this discontentedness by eliminating the attachments in the mind. So now if I go outside and I forget my phone, it's like, all right, whatever. And I just keep on going. Oh, don't have my phone with me. All right, well, no big deal. I've done that before, right? Or my son now, if he's playing the game and I say, hey, I need you to do this. Okay, dad. And he goes and does it. And he knows that that's impermanent. His game's impermanent, but also him going to do something is impermanent too. He's gonna be able to come back to the game eventually right? But you have to train the mind this way very actively. And then the fourth noble truth is the complete solution. So the first noble truth is describing the problem. The second noble truth is describing the cause of the problem. The third noble truth is describing 
the solution to craving desire attachment. It's describing the solution to that. And now the fourth noble truth is describing the complete solution to the discontent mind 100%, which is the path to eliminating discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. So if all you ever did was eliminate craving, desire, attachment, if all you ever did was eliminated this mental longing and strong eagerness, and that's all you did, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment because you would still be speaking in harmful ways to people. You would still be experiencing problematic situations in your life that the mind became discontent about because you're still going to have this anger and this hatred. You're still going to have this unknowing of true reality. You're still going to be doing harmful things through your speech or your actions or your livelihood and harmful things are going to be happening back to you. So the fourth noble truth is saying that there's an entire path here to actually solving the unenlightened mind. And that's the eightfold path. So let me pause here and see if there's any questions or what questions there might be. You talked there, David, under the second noble truth about how when a relationship comes to an end, if the mind has been attached to it and it doesn't yet realize the impermanence of that relationship, it can feel sad, of course. Does that mean then that sadness is a kind of process of the mind coming to terms with the impermanence of what it's attached to? Yes, because in that same situation, if you have a relationship that's ended, the mind's going to be sad for a period of time, but then eventually the mind's going to let go. And for some people, that's a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, or a few years. You know, I've talked to people that relationships have ended five, 10 years ago, and they're still not over it, right? And this is because the mind is still holding on to that other person, craving permanence. So, once you finally let go, then the mind is going to eliminate that sadness. It's no longer going to exist in the mind. And how readily the mind is able to do that is how well trained it is. And also it's a function of how deep is the craving, right? If you've met somebody for a week, for example, and you guys dated and then it ended after a week, uh, you know, you'll probably get over that pretty quickly. Right. But if you're with this person for 10 years and you guys, your whole life has become engrossed in each other and you guys do so many things together, then when you in the relationship, that's going to probably be harder for you to get over. And it's going to be more challenging for you to let it go because the craving is more deeply, perhaps. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so what we're going to do with the rest of our time is we're going to go through and talk about how this craving leads to a whole range of problems in the world. So if you look at war or famine or drug abuse or rapes or murder or any of these problems that we encounter in society, it's all because of craving desire, attachment, as well as hatred, anger, ill will, and this delusion, ignorance, and unknowing of true reality. Today, we're mainly talking about the craving aspect of the problem, but the true problem in the mind goes beyond craving. Craving is the primary problem. That's what's causing the discontentedness. But there are these other problems in the mind as well. 
So focusing in on craving, we can look at things like an automobile, okay? Having an automobile is helpful. It can be a very important thing for somebody's life. And a lot of us need an automobile or some mode of transportation. It might be a motorcycle or something else, right? So the motorcycle or the automobile isn't the problem. The problem is when the mind latches onto it and then it craves permanence. So if you put a lot of significance into this car or this motorbike and you want it to be permanently beautiful and look a certain way, well, when somebody gets into an accident or you come outside and you see a ding in your car, then the mind's going to be discontent because it's expecting this car to be permanent. It's, it's craving, it has this mental longing and a strong eagerness for this car to look permanently beautiful. So when somebody comes out with craving and they see a ding in their car, they can get very angry and very hostile because of that craving, desire, attachment. Now they would probably say that the person who dinged their car is the one who's causing them to be angry, but it's actually not. They're causing it themselves because their mind is attached to this car. Because somebody else could come out and see the ding in the car and say, oh, thank goodness I got insurance. Tomorrow I'm gonna take it and get it fixed. And they can respond very differently versus reacting out of anger and hostility. So the car itself isn't the problem, but if somebody has craving, desire, attachment for a car, then not only are they gonna be interested in keeping it permanently beautiful, but you can also have people that are like collecting cars and it's one car after another car after another car. And we say this is a hobby, right? And it's that pleasurable feeling in the purchase of that car and then it's another one and another one and another one, right? And what this will often lead to is excessive work. The person has to constantly be making money to feed this craving of acquiring more and more automobiles. It's not that it's wrong to collect automobiles. We're not judging that person because you can undertake this hobby without craving desire attachment. But if you pursue it with craving, desire, attachment, then it can create this excessive amount of work where you're constantly pursuing money in order to feed this craving. You can also accumulate a certain amount of ego around this collection. And maybe at one time you have five cars, but now it doesn't feed the ego as much. And now you need to add more and more and more in order to build up this ego in the eyes of the people around you. It may lead to a lack of time with those people that you care about. That now if you crave and desire, have this mental longing, strong eagerness to collect cars, you might actually end up putting a lot of time there instead of the people that you care about. And then it can also be a lot of pollution too. That, you know, like in America, pretty much everybody owns a car and we all get on the roads and we all drive to work and then there's this a lot of pollution everywhere, right? And there's other places in the world that are like that too. But what do we really need when it comes down to human existence? What we really need is transportation. But what happens is the mind has these pleasant feelings associated with a particular 
automobile and now all of a sudden the Toyota isn't fulfilling that ego or those pleasant feelings anymore and now we need to get a BMW or a Lamborghini or a Ferrari and that might be a particular craving that someone has and we're not judging this person we're not saying they've done anything wrong what we're exploring here is just explaining how the mind works right it's not about what's right or wrong because there can be one person who's collecting cars without any craving desire attachment whatsoever and another person can be doing it with craving desire attachment and either way we're not judging or saying that these people are bad or they're wrong for doing this or having this hobby but what i'm sharing with you is that if it's done with craving desire attachment it's going to cause problems in a person's life the same thing with like children for example there's nothing wrong with having children you're not a bad person if you choose to have children you're not a bad person if you choose not to have children but if somebody craves children and they really want children really badly and then let's just say they can't then the mind's going to be discontent so if the mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness and it craves children it just wants children and then it doesn't get children because maybe biologically they can't have children then the mind's going to be very sad very lonely or let's just say you have children and now you put so much pleasant feelings into your children and they bring you so much pleasant feelings so much happiness the couple just derives so much pleasure around their children now let's just say unfortunately the child dies right and now this couple is going to have grave painful feelings because that pleasant feelings are gone with their child and oftentimes couples that have children who die will oftentimes separate and they will divorce not too long after the child it may be a few years or what have you but oftentimes the parents put so much into the relationship with their children that now when their children either die or they go off to college or they get married the couple they're not inwardly fulfilled their only connection was through these children so now when the children are gone for whatever reason the relationship feels like it's lost its importance and now the two people separate because of that so if we allow the mind to have this mental longing and strong eagerness around children there's going to be displeasure and discomfort and these painful feelings at some point and it's going to be very problematic essentially what's happening is the mind is sabotaging itself it's allowing itself to wrap around and experience these pleasant feelings associated with children so therefore when that's gone because it's impermanent now the mind is going to be discontent again there's nothing wrong with having children that's fine if somebody would like to have children but it's when the mind wraps around it so much that it becomes discontent and oftentimes what can happen is parents can oftentimes try to control their children and they'll have certain expectations for their children and they lay out these expectations wanting them to be fulfilled and if the children do what the parent wants then the parents pleased with that but if they don't then the parents discontent they become sad or angry or frustrated 
because they're trying to control the child rather than allowing the child to make their own decisions. And if somebody wants children so badly and pursues that so much and so much and so much, what ends up happening is we get overpopulation where we've got so many people in the world that it puts a strain on the resources that we have in order to maintain our life in the world. We have so many cars, so much activity, so much human activity on the earth that we're cutting down forest, we're destroying our sea, we're destroying our drinking water, we're destroying our air. And this creates disease and famine and lack of resources and extensive amounts of work because we're constantly craving children, perhaps. And a lot of times people's minds are conditioned to believe that in order for this relationship to be fulfilling or in order for this life to be fulfilling, we have to have kids. And this is oftentimes a social pressure that's put on people. And if people adopt that thinking and they think that I'm only a important person or I only derive value in this life if I produce some offspring or I only derive pleasure from this relationship if we produce children. And if you believe that and you allow that societal pressure to become a condition in your mind, then that can drive you to wanting children so badly and then wanting your kids to perform in a certain way. And the mind grabs on expecting permanence. So now when they go to college or they get married, the mind becomes discontent. Or if they're not doing what it is that you want them to do through their life, the mind becomes discontent, right? So there's all these cravings that I put in this chapter from automobiles to children to clothing, jewelry, fame, food, eating, animal products, happiness, craving happiness and wanting happiness, helping the world, certain job titles, wanting a life partner. All of these things can be pursued in a wholesome way, right? They can all be pursued in a wholesome way and they won't lead to discontentedness, right? So you can have a career and pursue increased levels of growth in your career and getting more and more promotions and job titles. But if you do it with this mental longing with a strong eagerness and you have expectations that in three years I should be a manager and then five years after that I should be a director and then four years after that, I should be the vice president. If the mind has this mental longing, strong eagerness, you're going to cause the mind to be discontent because things aren't going to happen the way the mind expects. Or if your mind craves a life partner, you just want to have another person to be with you in your life because you derive a certain amount of happiness on this condition of having a life partner. Now, if the mind latches on and has this mental longing, strong eagerness, if you have a life partner, the mind might be happy, but then that's temporary. And now the mind causes itself to be discontent when you don't have a life partner. And people can be very anxious, very stressed, very eager to have a life partner. And then when they don't have one, they're very discontent. So the problem isn't that you don't have a life partner. But that's the way that the mind perceives it. The unenlightened mind perceives it as if I just have a life partner, then everything will be fine. 
So that's why the mind continually pursues this external condition of, I want a life partner. I need a boyfriend. I need a girlfriend. I need a husband. I need a wife. I need this. I need that. And it thinks if it just gets that, that it will be fine. But then what happens is it gets that, experiences those pleasant feelings for a period of time, but then they wear off. And then it's off to the next craving. And the mind never realizes that the real problem isn't that you don't have these certain things. The real problem is that the mind wants these certain things and it wants them right now. And because it can't have them right now or it can't have them permanently, the mind then becomes discontent. And there's another list here that this chapter goes on. Max actually flipped the slide. I put some more examples in here like power or sexual contact or substance abuse or wealth. This is just a short list of certain things that the mind may want, like perfection, and just kind of a short list of potential harms. This isn't an exhaustive list, right? This is just kind of helping you clue in to some of the things that the unenlightened mind is going to crave. And when it craves these things, it's going to cause itself discontentedness. For example, a lot of times, the mind craves for everything to be perfect. It wants this perfect little world. It wants things done in a certain way. And, you know, the trash has got to be taken out here. The pillows in the living room have to be here. The cups and saucers have to be here. And everything has to be organized in exactly this perfect way. And if I come in and I see dishes in the sink or I see things that aren't where I want them, then the mind becomes discontent. It becomes angry, becomes hostile, it becomes frustrated and annoyed, right? Or you feel guilty that you're not taking care of the house the way that you want, right? Or you have this perfection in a relationship. You think that a perfect relationship with a life partner looks like this. And when it doesn't look like that, then the mind feels guilty. Or you think the perfect child looks like this. And when it doesn't look like that, or when those things don't happen, then the mind becomes discontent. Well, that idea of perfection only exists in your mind. And that idea of perfection keeps changing because of impermanence. It keeps changing and changing and changing. So even if you can mold your kids into being this perfect ideal child that is in the mind, even once you do that, because of craving, the mind's going to add more things and more things and more things that it wants and you're just constantly putting pressure on your child to be this perfect image that you have in your mind, all the while the mind is ignorant to the understanding that you're actually driving this child away from you because they're feeling this pressure and these expectations that you're putting on them, or a life partner, or putting them on yourself, making yourself want to be perfect, and you're wanting this perfect day when you go to work. And when things don't happen that perfect way, when you leave work, you feel guilty. You feel shameful. You feel like you didn't do your job and you feel empty inside. But this is all because the mind is having this craving, this mental longing with a strong eagerness for things to be a certain way. And when they're not that way, then the mind causes itself to be discontent. So. What you have to get used to is setting goals, setting objectives, having an interest to accomplish something, 
but then be comfortable when impermanence starts to happen. You have to be fluid with it. And even though you're planning to do five things today and you'd like to get all five of those done, well, if you just get two of them done, you got to be okay with that. Or if you just get one of them or none of them done, that's what it means to live in the moment. So if five days from now you have a day off and you're planning to spend 12 hours with yourself and you start forming all of this once in this expectation that you're going to spend 12 hours with yourself. And that's where the problem actually starts is when the mind starts forming this mental longing and strong eagerness. And now when you move into five days from now in the present moment and things start happening with impermanence and you're not able to do that, that's going to cause the discontentedness. But what you've got to get to is, yeah, I'm off five days from now and I would like to spend some time with myself. That'd be really great if I can do that. So rather than having a want or an expectation or this mental longing with strong eagerness, have this kind of goal, this objective, this interest. And then when things happen five days from now, if you get that 12 hours, great, enjoy it. Spend the time with yourself. Or if you don't get that and something arises that you need to take care of, then that's fine too, right? You have to train the mind to be satisfied with what is rather than craving what you don't have because the mind's always going to crave something else and it's just going to keep pursuing this craving after craving after craving. So that's the problem. The solution is to train it to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations, just being satisfied with what is. So all of these things in this chart or this table, they can all be goals. They can all be objectives. They can all be interests, things that you pursue, except for maybe the substance abuse. (laughs) They can all be things that will lead to good results, but if your mind latches onto them and it wants them so badly, you're not always going to be able to get them. Here's one, sexual contact. You may enjoy sex. It may bring you pleasure. You may find a certain intimacy, a certain closeness with your partner when you do that. So that's a good thing that maybe you feel that brings you guys closer. Well, there's going to be times where both of your interests come together and you guys are able to do that. But then there's also going to be times when one partner isn't interested and the other partner is. And if that person has craving, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, then that person's going to be discontent, right? So you can pursue all of these things that are in this table as an interest, as a goal, but then recognize the impermanent nature of these things that you're not always going to be able to get what you want when you want it. And this just becomes recognizing those red lights going off, those discontentedness, and then just throttling it back and pursuing them as a goal or an interest. So let me pause here and see what questions, if any, you guys might have. We have a question from Gabriel. What about attachment to concepts? Is it okay to attach to concepts or ideas? This is the same thing. Any kind of craving, desire, attachment is always going to lead to discontentedness. If you're attached to a concept or an opinion or an idea, this is why political discussions end usually 
with so much hostility or aggression because people get so attached to their opinion or their view or their idea or their concept. They want it so badly and they want to convince other people of that so badly that the conversation becomes very hostile and aggressive. Or let's just say you're working on a certain project and you have this certain concept or this certain idea and you just pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue with this craving, this longing, this strong eagerness, and it's got to be done at a certain time. You know, you felt that before. It feels like someone rings you out with a rag by the time you get done with it. And it's like, wow, you know, that almost wasn't even enjoyable when you get done with it because you feel so empty inside, right? So any kind of longing with a strong eagerness is going to cause the mind to be discontent. Even meditation, even coming to these classes, if you have a craving desire attachment, if you have this longing with a strong eagerness to come to this class, and then some days you're not going to be able to, then the mind's going to be discontent when you're not able to. It doesn't mean that coming to class is wrong. It doesn't mean that meditating is wrong or there's something bad with that. It's just that when the mind longs for it and has this strong eagerness for it because it's not going to be able to meditate permanently, it's not going to be able to come to class every single time that we have class. So there's no such thing as a good attachment it's always going to lead to discontentedness of the mind. And you've got to just train the mind to recognize the impermanent nature of all things in the world and just accept that. So if you've got a certain opinion or certain idea, you can express that with your friends and your family and people who would like to talk about it. And you just share your opinion, your views, your concept, your ideas. And you can have a very healthy, productive conversation, especially if you're using the five factors of well-spoken speech. But it's when you have this longing and strong eagerness for your idea or for your opinion, and now you have not only the longing for that idea, but now you have this longing and strong eagerness to get everyone to agree with you that now you start talking aggressively, you start interrupting people, you're not talking gentle anymore, you're not talking with a mind of loving kindness, and now the conversation erodes and you cause problems in your life. This is how you sabotage relationships by holding on to concepts, ideas, and opinions. So it doesn't mean you don't pursue and you don't progress your opinions and your ideas and you don't try to fulfill the things that it is that you're looking to fulfill in your life. It just means that you don't do it with this longing and strong eagerness, right? Like for me, I'm interested in sharing these teachings with as many people in the world as possible. But if my mind had a certain longing and strong eagerness that I I had to have 100 people in the class in order for me to feel fulfilled, or I have to live stream every single class in order to feel this happiness, or I have to have X number of students in order to feel some kind of pleasant feelings, then my mind's going to be discontent because I'm never going to meet that objective all the time. It's not possible. So I don't have any objective. Max used to tell me at the end of each class how many people were on live stream. And you're like, David, today we had 10 here. We had this many people on Zoom. And I was like, all right, okay, that's fine. And eventually I was just like, Max, you don't have to tell me that. Like, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of people that are learning on the podcast, on 
YouTube and all these different places, you know, how many people show up to the live classes, it's interesting to know that we're growing and there's more and more people that are coming to learn, but I don't derive any kind of pleasant feelings whether we have three people or we have 30. I'm gonna teach the same way, right? So you can apply effort and energy and resources towards obtaining a goal and objective. My goal and objective is to share these teachings with as many people in the world as possible. Anybody who's interested to learn to share these teachings as far and as wide as possible throughout the world. That's the goal, interest, and objective. But how that gets done day to day, I'm not attached to any one particular way or how many people need to come to class each day or any kind of like strong metrics like that because that's just gonna cause discontentedness if I have this longing with a strong eagerness for some particular expectation or want. We have a question from Michael. Can you explain more about attachment of being significance? Right, so like if there's ego and somebody wants to be significant, right? They wanna be important, they wanna be famous, or they wanna have notoriety. This is the mind craving a certain thing. It has a certain longing or strong eagerness for a certain thing. And when you get that initially, the mind's gonna be happy. It's gonna be excited, it's gonna be elated, but then those feelings are gonna wear off. This is why like, you'll see a lot of famous people in the world that will really aspire to be famous and have notoriety and they'll pursue their career and they'll get a lot of fame. But oftentimes you hear these people that will have substance abuse, you'll hear that they commit suicide or other things like this because they're craving notoriety and fame so much and they're working and working and working and pursuing it because they think that's what's gonna make the mind feel its best and they're craving that happiness. But then once they get it, then that happiness wears off and now they're no longer happy because it was temporary. So now they start introducing drugs and alcohol to try to create those feelings again. So I think about like Prince or Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston or some of these other stars that are have done amazing, wonderful things in the world, but they ended up using drugs and alcohol and some of them even commit suicide as part of their life because their life becomes so discontent. They have so much painful feelings and we're on the outside looking in saying, my goodness, you know, they're worth $100 million or $500 million. They're doing these concerts with 50,000, 100,000 people. They've got bodyguards and limousines and private jets. And why would they ever commit suicide? Well, the reason why is because their mind was craving, 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 craving. And then eventually that happiness wore off and it crashed into the painful feelings. And this is why craving notoriety or significance or fame, it's not going to lead to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because it still has the central primary problem of craving, desire, attachment, expectations, wants, right? So by training the mind, someone can still pursue being a professional singer or a professional whatever in you know a politician they may become famous 
they may gain notoriety throughout the world. But if they allow that to be the motivator that they're trying to get this significance in the world, then that significance that they want, like the threshold, keeps increasing because of craving. There's this impermanent nature of craving that once you get it and you fulfill your craving, then the mind's going to want more. And now it goes there and then it wants more and then it goes there and it keeps moving up more and more and more and it can't sustain that. And eventually it burns out and then it becomes painful, very painful. And that's where people turn to substances or other addictions, not just substances. And then eventually sometimes life becomes so miserable, people just commit suicide uh, because they're craving happiness. And that's why the whole world that anybody who's trying to get happiness and craving happiness, it's like setting yourself up to fail because you can't sustain that happiness permanently. But if your mind keeps craving it, craving it, craving it, when it doesn't have it, then it's going to turn to substances or other addictions like gambling or sex or things like this. And then when those things aren't fulfilling enough, then eventually you'll commit suicide potentially, or your life will just go down and down and down and down because the mind just keeps pursuing all these cravings. So the alternative to that is to learn and practice these teachings, train the mind to eliminate craving and just realize that you're a human being, you're in this life, your goal is to create a life for yourself and you just pursue your goals and your interests to accomplish whatever it is that you need to accomplish in this life but without this longing and strong eagerness that's driving the unenlightened mind to all this external pleasure that it's seeking. But instead, turn that inward and train the mind to be inwardly fulfilled because then if you're famous, great, that's wonderful, hallelujah. If you're not, great, wonderful, hallelujah. That's not a craving that you have. But if it happens, that's fine. If it doesn't, that's fine too. But don't try to fake your mind out and make yourself think that. Like, okay, well, if I become famous, that's fine. If I don't, I don't. Because you can say that intellectually, but then you need to look deeper in the mind and see what's motivating the mind. And if you feel the mind pulling in the direction of, gosh, I want to be so significant in this world, then that's going to cause the mind to be discontent. We have a follow-up from Mercia. She asks, do you not think that great inventors, artists, sportsmen, etc., could not have come about without craving or obsession? A lot of them were motivated by craving, but you don't have to have craving to do that, right? Because one of the most famous people that I know in the entire world is Gautama Buddha. Do you know any other person from 2,500 years ago? Like, is there any name from 2,500 years ago that you can just rattle off the tip of your tongue right now that was famous or invented something or discovered something? There's not too many people, right? So you can still accomplish significant goals without craving. So you can still be an inventor, a scientist, a doctor, you know, a community leader, a great mom, a great dad. All of these things can still exist but without this burning desire that I've got to have it and I got to have it now, right? That's where the problem comes in. 
and potentially also David, it has to be done in this way. Yes, and in this way, right? So you will actually be more successful without craving desire attachment. So let's just say I invent something, right? And I have this craving desire attachment because I've invented this thing and I'm pushing, 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 and I want to become a multi-gazillionaire because of this new thing that I created. And I'm pushing, 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 pushing with the ego. I'm you know, talking unkind to people you're going to have less of a tendency to actually be successful even if you've invented the most amazing thing on the face of the earth because people aren't going to want to work with you, right? And you're just pushing, pushing, pushing because you're trying to get to some outcome and you feel like if you just become a gazillionaire, then everything will be wonderful in your life. But that's not how it works, right? So you can still invent that same thing and it might be the greatest invention in the world, But now if you kindly, politely, respectfully work with people consistently over a gradual period of time, you can now make better and better decisions about your conduct and the way that you introduce this product into the world that you will actually have a more sustaining life with this new product that you invented as opposed to doing it with craving, desire, attachment where you're just pushing, 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 pushing things might actually fall down and fall apart. So you can still do all the same things in the world without this craving, desire, attachment, and you'll actually do them better and you'll have better success. In the past, David, I've heard you discuss two ways we can engage with craving. We can work to eliminate it straight off, but also how sometimes you've said that the best way to eliminate a craving can be to fulfill it. So I wonder if you can talk about those two different approaches and when we might use each of those. Yeah, so there's two ways to extinguish craving. One is to extinguish it actively through like what I did with my son with the video game is introduce a whole lot of impermanence, work with it skillfully, gradually extinguish this mental longing, strong eagerness that he has. But then ultimately, once he extinguishes it now, he still plays video games. It's just that he doesn't do it with that longing and strong eagerness, right? That when it's time to go outside and play or his mom and dad needs him to do something, he does it. And then when it's time to come back to the game, he comes back to the game. So that craving, desire, attachment had to be extinguished through skillfully working with it, introducing impermanence, and that is what eliminated it. The other way is to fulfill it. With that particular craving, I know that you can't fulfill that. Like that can go on for years and years and years and years. But another type of craving, like say I was really interested to go to the Philippines, for example, and I'd never been to the Philippines and I just would love to go to the Philippines someday. Well, one way to extinguish that is just to go do it, right? And if my mind is longing and longing and longing and has this craving, desire, attachment to go to the Philippines and I've just never gone and there's just no way to extinguish that other than to just go fulfill it and see what it's like. So certain cravings like that, you can just fulfill them. But kind of ongoing cravings like a video game, that one you're never going to be able to fulfill enough. So you have to look at your craving closely and see what is it and then figure out how to extinguish it. Am I actively going to extinguish it through training of the mind and just kind of completely erasing it from the mind so I no longer am interested 
and longing for it in the same way, like with his video games? Or am I actually just going to go to the Philippines, check it out, see what it's like. And now that I see it, now I understand it and I don't have an interest to go there again. Or maybe I really enjoyed it. And now I'll go back there someday, but I don't have this burning desire to go do it. Okay, thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so if there's anything in the Buddhist teachings that you need to understand really, really well, it's craving. That's why it's got its own little chapter here, right? You can look back through the book and chapter four is really about craving. You know, it's the Four Noble Truths, but it's really about craving and discontentedness. It's got other things in there too, but the overarching theme of that chapter is helping you understand craving. Then when we get into chapter 12, which is identifying cravings and eliminating them, then even chapter 14, when we talk about true love, we talk about how craving is oftentimes misunderstood as love. And then now here in chapter 16, we're calling it out individually, talking about craving being the problem and what is the solution. When we get into the chapter 22 about mental health, we're going to explore craving again and talk about how craving creates a lot of problems there too. So if there's anything in Gautama Buddha's teachings on this path to enlightenment that you need to deeply understand, it's craving, this desire, this attachments, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. This is what's causing all the discontent feelings. Love doesn't cause discontentedness. Your friends and family doesn't cause you to be angry. You're causing it yourself. And the beauty in understanding this is that because you're causing it, you can eliminate it. That's why you can attain enlightenment or this mind can be trained to attain enlightenment because the mind's causing the problem of this discontentedness because it's got this craving, this aspect of the mind that is craving it's born into this world with that, along with a whole lot of other problems. But this primary problem, the mind's causing itself to be discontent, and that's why you can eliminate it. That's the beautiful thing about this practice. And that's why by you focusing inwardly on you in your mind, you can get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. But if you keep trying to fix this outside world, and you try to get people to do things in a certain way around you, and you're trying to now control the outside world, you can't do that. Because of impermanence and everybody having free will, you can't set up this outside world in a particular way that's always going to be to your pleasing. So the only thing you can do is set up your mind to understand this outside world is to understand these natural laws of existence. And by you understanding these natural laws of existence, now you can train your mind to understand these natural laws and how the outside world works. And now once you understand how this outside world works, you don't have an interest to fix it anymore because you know you can't. You can't change the fact that there's impermanence. You can't change that. That's a universal truth. It's part of the natural laws of existence. You can't change that. You can't change the fact that your car is going to get in an accident sometime. It's going to get dings. The paint's going to fade. You can't change that. You can't change the fact that sometimes people are going to talk to you in a hostile way, in an angry way. 
You can't change that. You can't force everyone to be kind and polite all the time. But you can change your mind that when someone isn't kind and polite, you don't allow the mind to become discontent because you now have control over it. Because you've now trained it so well and you recognize these natural laws of existence and you understand that this person being hostile or angry or aggressive, it's not a reflection of you. It's how they're choosing to react in the world, that you didn't do anything to cause that, that they're causing their own discontentedness. You actually, I think, kind of breathe a couple easy breaths when you realize, my goodness, all these problems, I've been causing them myself. There's all these problems that are, that are perceived problems in the world, but in reality, it's just a bunch of craving, anger, ignorance. It's just a bunch of self and ego. It's just a bunch of discontentedness. And I can fix all of that because what's causing it is all right here. It's all right here in the mind. And I've got 100% control over this mind. But I can't train 7.5 billion people to do things my way, but I can train this one mind. And to me, that's a, like a big sigh of relief that you don't have to go around and train everybody in your life to do things your way because that's gonna drive you crazy. It's going to be hard enough to train just this one mind that you have complete control over, or at least you have the complete ability to control this mind and to train it. You have complete ability to train this mind and control this mind. And even with that complete ability, that's going to be challenging enough. So if you can imagine going around trying to train everybody else to do things your way, that's not going to work. So what this practice is about is learning about the craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, and then working skillfully with that and applying these remedies or these prescriptions that the Buddha gave us as the solution to this problem. And the more and more you get better at that, the more you'll see that the mind eases up closer and closer to this peacefulness because the mind no longer is pursuing things with this longing and strong eagerness. It's pursuing things as a goal or an interest or an objective. Okay. So on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation, and then we can take questions afterwards. So what I'm going to be doing now is on Wednesdays, we're just going to go right into meditation, just like we've been doing on Saturday. We're just going to go right into meditation on Wednesday. We're going to do breathing mindfulness meditation. And then afterwards, we'll take any questions or cover anything related to this topic that we might need to further explore. And then on Saturday, we're going to do meditation again. We're going to do breathing mindfulness and loving kindness on Saturday. And then next Sunday, we're in chapter 17, which is dissolving the ego. The ego serves no wholesome purpose. I can tell you from my perspective, at least in my practice, you guys can decide for yourself whether the ego is gone or not. But I feel like that was the hardest part is letting go of the ego because the ego sits there and just wants to tell you, you're so perfect, you're so wonderful. Even when your mind's awakening to enlightenment, 
you start feeling all this pride and all this arrogance about how much wisdom you have and your meditation practice is going so well. The ego is one of the hardest things I think to let go of. And it's one of the easiest things to pick back up. And I think it's also one of the most detrimental things in the world for you if you still have ego. And if right now, if I ask you, do you have ego? And if your answer was no, then you still have ego because the ego is going to try to convince you that you no longer have ego. So if I ask you, do you have ego? And you're like, no, I don't have any ego. Well, yes, you do. That's the ego right there speaking, right? So getting rid of this ego is just going to help your relationships blossom so much because there won't even be the slightest little bit of arrogance or ego or pride coming through in your speech and your actions around other people. And you can just be very humble and very peaceful, right? This man, Gautama Buddha, as amazing things that he brought to this world, he didn't prop himself up and expect everybody to worship him and bow down to him. He just looked at everybody equally, humbly. He did just the opposite. He was destined to be a king and he stepped down out of the royal family and just walked around in rags and essentially lived on the generosity of the people around him to provide him food, shelter, clothing, water, and medical supplies, humbling himself and really dedicating his life to sharing the teachings to help other people. So in this modern world, letting go of the ego will be one of the best things that you could ever do for yourself. But you won't know whether that ego is actually gone or not. It's only other people that will feel it and sense it, right? So we're going to go into that on Sunday and give you some understanding of what the ego is and help convince you that you don't need it anymore if it's still there and give you some practical examples of how to work at slowly chipping away and eliminating this ego. So until next time, whether it's Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday, have a really wonderful rest of your day and a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.